0: Kia ora ni hao. Hello. Welcome to the Chiwi Journal podcast. I'm your host, Camille Yang. On the show, I interview global citizens who follow a unique path to build a better future and share stories and tips they learned along the way. Our conversations are focused on culture observations, technology trends, career development, and philosophy. My guest today is Jane. He's an experienced digital nomad and worked in consulting, marketing, agri business, and education. Jim is a 1.5 generation Chinese American and lived and worked across three continents and speak multiple languages. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Can you please walk me through the journey when you first moved to America?
1: Sure. Thank you for having me on your on your podcast, Camila. I'm honored to uh, participate and to share some of my perspectives and also some of my stories. So, uh, to answer your, your question, in terms of my uh, my move to America, so I was born in China uh, many many years ago, but I immigrated to the U.S. when I was very young. So, my parents immigrated to the U.S. first back in the nineteen eighties, and uh, and then. I moved uh, to the U.S. when I was seven. So so I, I kind of I joined them when I was very, very young, when I was a kid. And uh, I became a U.S. citizen because there was this law where um, it said that if one of your parents was a citizen, then as a minor, you kind of just get automatically naturalized as one. So I really didn't give much thought to it back then as a minor. It, just, it was just like an automatic process. And um, I, I grew up. First in Miami, Florida. I went to elementary school in Miami, Florida. I went to middle school as well in Miami, Florida. So it was a arguably a different environment from a typical U.S. setting as in Boston or New York. And I remember many of my elementary school classmates were Hispanic from Latin America from the Caribbean. So it wasn't mm-hmm. a, a very, very typical American experience per se. And at times it kind of felt like living in a part of Latin America, <laughs> with the exception exactly. that the yeah. road signs were in English. You literally had cars that would pass by and you see the American flag on one side and the Cuban flag on the other side, or the wow. Puerto Rican flag or the Dominican flag on the other side. And it at times, um, English-speaking population was arguably a minority, whereas the Spanish-speaking population, speaking population was a majority. So as a kid, um, I remember going to elementary school and having to learn both English and Spanish at the same time, almost at the same time, while trying to keep up with the Mandarin Chinese speaking at home.
0: So are your parents, they speak Mandarin back home?
1: Yes, they speak Mandarin back home.
0: Uh, You need to speak English at school and with your friends.
1: Correct. So it was uh, at times confusing trying to learn three languages at once or trying to refine three languages at once. My Spanish, honestly, never got very far, even though I started learning Spanish when I was very young because I kind of concentrated and prioritized the English and the Chinese as opposed to Spanish, which... I refined later on as I was working in Latin America or having or, or after college, but the, the start of it was very, very much early in terms of the learning the basics at a very uh, at a very young age.:
0: I got some friends. They, they're from New Zealand. Their parents are both Asian, but uh, when they grow up, they refuse to learn Chinese, Mandarin or Cantonese. Because they only want to speak English. I don't know when you were little, do you have this mindset, side? Like, why do I need to speak Chinese as everybody in school, they speak English?
1: The Chinese was partially self-taught. Some of the things that I felt was very important were more or less self-taught as, as opposed to taught in school. So there was the option, I think, at the time of... Going to a Chinese school, they had those in certain areas, but um, I mostly just learned at home in terms of just speaking with parents, with relatives, mm-hmm. and also reading a lot of books. So the you know the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, the um, I remember getting lots and lots of uh, books and I will use chinese for for the for the names of books so it's it's a sango yan yi shui hu so the 自助通監 wow a lot of the ancient books actually these are more ancient books as opposed to the, the modern ones it was just interesting reading them and then part of the thinking and understanding kind of came from the reading the history and trying to digest at a very young age the ancient texts some of the ancient texts were actually in modern Chinese. Shui Hu that one was, I remember the, so the, I think the English translation was Raiders of the Marsh. That one was half Asian Chinese, Ban Wen Yan, the half Asian Chinese and then half modern Chinese, Bai Hua. So it was kind of a mix. The Three Kingdoms book I received was in modern Chinese, although it was came kind of, I remember it came in two volumes. It was like thousands of pages. So... I remember that was when I was 11 years old. So Mm -hmm. it took a while to digest, but it was fun.
0: So many interesting stories.
1: It was very fun. It was very fun. So I guess the learning point was that the best learning happens when you enjoy it and it doesn't feel like it's learning. And I think that was the issue I had with Spanish when I was young was because it was taught in school and it kind of felt like very forced in the beginning. So because Spanish, when you learn Spanish the first time, You learn the grammar first. It's one of those languages where verbs and the vocabulary is quite easy, but the grammar is kind of half the battle in terms of the preterite tense, the imperfect tense, the conditional tense, the subjunctive tense. There's so many, just so many different tenses, and that got quite boring. To, to learn.
0: Yeah, when I was learning English at school, I never had a good school because the grammar part is just so annoying. But so for speaking and writing, I quite enjoy it. But just uh, those kind of grammar tests just don't make sense, makes you don't want to learn.
1: it. Absolutely. <laughs> English is tough. And uh, the reason why English is tough is because English, the way that English is constructed today does not make a lot of sense. Because English is kind of the reflection of the history of the invasion of the British Isles, so it's a mix of the old um, Romano-British with the Anglo-Saxon languages, the Germanic language language roots, plus the result of the Norman invasion. So you, you, you have in English many phrases in which the adjective comes before the noun, whereas mm-hmm. in most Romantic languages, Latin language, just the adjectives mm-hmm. comes after the noun. But then you have phrases like attorney general, for example, mm-hmm. in which the adjective general comes after the noun, which is attorney. And the reason is that when the Normans invaded England after uh, in, in, the, in the year 1066, they brought with them the The old, uh, the Latin mixed with the old French type of language. And it kind of just got mixed with the old Anglo-Saxon Germanic English. So the English as a language, the grammar is not as clear cut and as logical as Italian or Spanish or Portuguese or French or any of the Latin languages. So English is a very tough language for learning grammar. The grammar doesn't make sense. Whereas Spanish is a tough language to learn grammar because the grammar is too complex. It, it they have so many very logical and yet very complex rules around how you con- mm-hmm. conjugate a verb, and depending on who the other person is, what is the timing in which you, you use the verb, wow. it kind of um, you have to use a different tense. And Chinese, on the other hand, has a difficulty on. The other end of the spectrum, the, the, the grammar is very easy. The grammar is oftentimes very easy in East Asian languages. In, in languages like Bahasa Indonesia, it's the same thing where there is no defined, oftentimes defined past tense or future tense, right? In, in, China, in modern Chinese, we just add la to something. And that's how Singaporeans, in Singaporeans when you speak, they speak something, something la, right? something, something la. But in, in, in Asian Chinese, there is no such conjugation. So the grammar is very easy. Also, figure out what a character is based on looking at it because it's pictographic. It's one of the few pictographic languages. That's also very easy. So there, there's a saying in Chinese where if you are a scholar, you can um, guess any of the any of the words by by just looking at the, the 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 half of the half half of the pictogram, and you kind of can guess what the meaning is. What makes Chinese hard is that it has no alphabet. Because it's not alphabetic. Mm-hmm. What makes it harder is that it is not phonetic, meaning that what you see has no correlation with how it's pronounced today. That is the most difficult thing for someone who's Chinese. If, if Chinese is not your native language or is not if you have not learned Chinese when you're very young, mm-hmm. it is very, very difficult if you're learning Chinese, let's say when you're 25 or 35. and But that's not the way it used to be, though. It, it's not used to be. It, the Chinese is hard because modern Chinese, 普通話, the modern version of Mandarin Chinese, is never the way that Chinese is supposed to be spoken. The way that Chinese is spoken today doesn't make sense, just as the way that English is kind of grammatically positioned today doesn't make sense. It's the result of the multiple mm. centuries and millennia of migrations that happened throughout Chinese history. There is a theory that the ancient Chinese in the time of Confucius used to be pronounced. Many of the words were dual syllables or multi-syllables. There was a reason why, you know how certain Chinese characters have a left and a right? And there was a theory that that's because the left and the right were the two different pronunciations. You kind of had to pull them together. Oh, okay. And there were two major shifts in the way that Chinese was pronounced. The first major shift was from Old Chinese to Middle Chinese. So Old Chinese was from the the time of the first dynasties through Confucius through the end of the Han Dynasty and then the middle chinese was developed through the after the fall of the han dynasty through the um, the northern southern dynasties towards and it, the middle chinese was crystallized around the time of the sui and tang dynasties so when we th- hear people speak cantonese uh fukien minnan or Fukian, cantonese or hakka qia hakka right these are Mm-hmm. Certain dialects, local dialects, that because they were far away from the geopolitical centers in Central China, they were able to preserve many of the pronunciations of Middle Chinese. Yeah, true. So arguably, Cantonese is a more authentic dialect than modern Mandarin Chinese because Cantonese, because of the region of Canton, was far away from the geopolitical center of the time. It Kind of was able to preserve many of the um, how many of the pronunciations were ended in Middle Chinese, whereas the modern uh, Mandarin Chinese Mandarin Chinese did not take hold until um, fall of the Song Dynasty, and um, so the so the, the 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 second major shift in the way that Chinese was spoken was after the Song Dynasty. So the reason is that from the Song Dynasty to the Ming Dynasty, around. Um, there was around like a hundred years, right? When when the Mongols invaded China, when um, when the northern China fell to various groups, that in that period uh, through the Mongol invasions, northern China lost about eighty percent of its population. So whenever there is a major shift in population dynamics, when the population is decimated, ways in which languages are spoken can change rapidly, especially with a language like Chinese that is not phonetic. And therefore, there was a major shift in terms of the, the, um, the dialects. The Northern Chinese dialects we know today took hold, yeah. starting around the time of the early Ming Dynasty.
0: Mm, I see.
1: So there, there, there is very arguably little variation between the, the, um, the some of the Northern dialects we know today Versus the, the northern dialects in, in the Ming dynasty. Oh, actually, actually, no, I take it back. There are some variations. Mm-hmm. But, the, but the variations are not as much as the northern dialects of the Tang and Song dynasties. So when, when people in the capital regions in the Tan and Song dynasties, when they spoke, they spoke pretty much closer to how someone who speaks Cantonese today would speak, <laughs> as opposed to Mandarin Chinese. They, the, the earliest, earliest forms of Mandarin Chinese didn't take hold until the Ming dynasty the official languages around the capital regions of the Ming Dynasty was also very different from the Mandarin we know today. It, it, the, the, the Ming Dynasty official dialect, meaning when I say official dialect, I mean the, the court uh, the court dialect was kind of, I mean, if you follow, like if you ever uh, hear Chinese opera, it's one of those, um, not the Beijing opera, but the, one of the southern operas. It sounds a little bit like the southern operas it's uh, we we know almost very closely what it sounded like due to the contributions of certain jesuit missionaries such as um, such as matteo ricci and um i forgot this uh, an, an, another guy back in the 17th century they were able to latinize the pronunciations of the late ming dynasty official dialects through so so we we kind of know how it's spoken and it's you can understand it mm. And it is somewhat similar to modern Mandarin, but it's not the same thing. There are certain certain ways of pronunciation that are lost in modern Mandarin. And part of the reason is because of the Manchurian invasions in 1644. So they, the modern Mandarin actually didn't take hold until the takeover of, uh, of China by the Manchurians. And so when the Manchurians came to China, they were not able to pronounce the Ming Dynasty version of the Mandarin dialect. So what they did was they pronounced the, 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 the Chinese language in the way that they thought it can be pronounced mm. based on their dialect. And so the Beijing dialect, in which, which is what the modern Mandarin dialect was based on, is a combination of the old Ming Dynasty mm-hmm. Beijing dialect with the more newer uh, incoming Manchurian version of the uh, of the Mandarin dialect and it kind of just got mixed together. So the modern in modern Mandarin Chinese dialect there is a lot of err er, the, the R sound which is the R sounds never existed before the Qing dynasty. Oh
0: no wonder a lot of Cantonese they can't pronounce this
1: er, they cannot pronounce. No. Oh. because the the Southern the Southern dialects because they're more removed from the north, <laughs> they were less affected, and therefore they were able to pre- preserve not only the, the Ming Dynasty stuff, but even earlier the, the Tang and Song Dynasty pronunciations. Some of it, some of it. But also, obviously, they've also evolved, evolved as well. So, if if you want to find out, let's say the the what are the differences in pronunciations? Um, there are check out the the pronunciation of the, the, there are live um, recordings of uh, Emperor Puyi, the last emperor how he pronounced things. It's very, very close to the modern, very, very, it's almost exactly the same as someone who would, let's say, a modern person in Beijing would speak because it's, it's literally the same.
0: Oh, yeah, true. I, I remember this.
1: Whereas if you hear the recordings of Zhang Kai-shek or Mao Zedong, very different. <laughs> Mao Zedong sounded more like a Ming dynasty bureaucrat compared to uh, a modern Chinese dialect. Yeah, because
0: it's from Hunan, it's uh, like more southern part.
1: Hunan and the Hunan, they they, they were the more south. Yes, the more south you go, the more you're able to preserve the older dynasties yeah. pronunciations. And so, so it's not right or wrong. So when we hear someone like Mao Zedong, or when we hear someone from yeah. the old Sun Yat-sen was another one. Sun Yat-sen had a very mm-hmm. he had a, he, was, he was Cantonese. He had a very mm-hmm. Cantonese pronunciation, and. So we cannot just say that, oh, no, they don't, they could not speak proper Mandarin. It's because they were actually speaking in a more, arguably, more authentic version or the older version of the language. And because the language is not phonetic, it kind of changes more rapidly than some of the more Indo-European phonetic languages. Because of the fact that what you see is has no direct correlation with how it's spoken.
0: I found this very interesting when Mao Zedong... Built the People's Republic of China, he did some revolution to standardize the Mandarin as official language. I found why is that? Why he didn't uh, ask anybody to speak like him?
1: That's a good question. And at the time of the founding of the People's Republic of China, I don't think he had the choice because it was already in the Republic of China before the way that the Mandarin was spoken was already set. So there was a period after the fall of the Qing dynasty mm-hmm. in which there were a bunch of intellectuals before or around uh, the May 4th movement in 1919 in which people debated, which version of Mandarin do we follow? Or do you follow the, um, the Nanjing version? Nanjing version kind of preserved a lot of the old Ming dynasty pronunciations, or do you follow the Beijing version, which is much more closer to the manchurian dialect and uh, for better or worse the beijing one won out and there was i think there was a vote or something the beijing one won by like one or two votes it's oh, almost wow. like the same when <laughs> the when the united states was founded they had a vote on the national language and english beat german by i heard there was that's the, a fairy tale i don't know if it's true or not but but, but the rumor is that english beat german by one vote so the U.S. could have been adopting German as the, as the, uh, as the official language, but the English just be German by one vote. It's almost like the, you know, again, in the People's Republic of China founded, there was a vote on which city should be the capital, right? Beijing, Nanjing, or Xi'an. Beijing beat Xi'an by one vote. So it, it's one of those things that it had the vote gone the other way, things could have been very different. And we could all be speaking a different version of the language. And, uh, you know, it could be, you know, Americans could be speaking German. Imagine that. Chinese could be <laughs> speaking the Nanjing Ming Dynasty version yeah. of Chinese. And that's what the version that people are gonna be learning. So it, it's all perspective, right? It's all perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, we think that when we hear playbacks of the Ming Dynasty dialects, or when we hear Cantonese, we think it's weird. But, you know, sometimes it's just that mm-hmm. the angle is different. And what we think is weird, they think we are weird. Right. So it, it's, it's all about perspective.
0: True. So how many languages do you speak?
1: So I learned, I, 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 I'm I not sure if I can speak at the same time. Well, although I, I can, if, if you give me like mm-hmm. a couple of days to review. So, the, so English and Chinese, that's just native languages. And then Spanish is the language that kind of everyone in the U.S. learns as a second language at some point in his or her life. Mm-hmm. And then Portuguese was the one that I self-taught myself by living in Brazil.
0: Can you tell me a little bit of your life experience in Brazil? Was it very different from the culture you embedded when you grew up in America and in China?
1: Brazil was different. I think Brazil had a very significant impact on my life perspectives and trajectories. And um, But mm. the Brazil didn't happen until I finished graduate school. So it, it you know, they, they really... Didn't happen until mm-hmm. after finishing graduate school, and their inspiration was actually during graduate school. One of my professors took me and a couple of other friends to visit her friend. Her friend's brother was the referee of the nineteen seventy eight World Cup final between the Netherlands and the other Argentina, and Argentina beat the Netherlands in, in, in that World Cup final. It was like a he was kind of like a celebrity, and and, and the the friend of my professor her husband was the one of the, one of the senator, local senators of uh, Sao Paulo state. Mm-hmm. This was Sao Paulo, Brazil. Yeah. And uh, so we had about 20 people with a professor. We're visiting the, this, this, this person who we didn't know, mm-hmm. but we knew that the, that the brother was very mm-hmm. famous for football mm-hmm. reasons. And the 20 of us thought that, you know, we felt bad. We're never going to fit in this, this, this person's flat, but, but, you know, we didn't want to offend the person, so we we, we ended up going to the place and visiting the place. And the shock was that every one of us, pretty much, just were we're all kind of in the one corner of a very large balcony, which was a part of his of this person's very very large flat. And we were we we're just like in shock and awe in terms of how big the place was. And I remember looking just looking up at the expansive Sao Paulo night line at the time and telling myself, okay. This city is essentially endless. I am shocked and I am awed mm-hmm. by the endless night-lying sky of this tremendously awesome city. And there I told myself, you know, Jim, I have to find a way to come and live and work here for some mm-hmm. time. So I made it a goal, you know, post-graduation, self-taught myself a little bit of Portuguese. And then convinced the—I was working for a multinational at the mm-hmm. time— so I, I I annoyed the vice president of HR <laughs> enough yeah. that she allowed me to transfer to Sao Paulo, Brazil, and which it was a Brazil was a great place to live mm-hmm. if you are a extroverted person if you're an outgoing person it has uh, Sao Paulo had. Arguably the best uh, nightlife. You know, Buenos Aires was good. Buenos Aires, Argentina was good. I gave like Buenos Aires maybe maybe a a 93 percent mm. or 95 percent. Sao Paulo was kind of like a 99 98 percent in terms of nightlife. It was amazing, amazing, just amazing, in terms of the openness of the people and mm. just the general cosmopolitan environment. It was very much a melting pot on the same level of a New York City in terms of the diversity of the people. It had the largest concentration of Japanese outside of Tokyo or outside of native Japan. And uh, being Asian was normal Mm -hmm. there. And Mm -hmm. there is very little discrimination. And there's also, you know, one interesting thing about Latin America is that people are so kind of mixed already, in terms of their cultures, their backgrounds, and their ethnicities, in that it is really a melting pot, especially, you know, going to a city like Sao Paulo, going to a city like Rio, it is really a melting pot, and, and, you know, arguably Brazil has more diversity than the United States than Canada, in terms of how many just different people from different backgrounds and different cultures end up there in just one giant gigantic melting pot of sorts and um, it has a very very also very distinct culture that is also formative and that kind of derives its uh its, its value from this melting pot of peoples and original cultures from from you know from africa from asia from europe and other places
0: yeah, I think if you look at South American history, I found it very interesting. There is a very close connection between Peru and China and also the Brazil and Japan. Do you know what's the yes. reason behind that?
1: I, I cannot say too much about the Peruvian one since I, I'm not as familiar with Peru. So I can only just talk about the places I've been to or lived in. Brazil, uh, there has been a major... Mm-hmm. migration of japanese to brazil since the i think since the menji Restoration, so we're, we're taking, looking at the middle to the late 1800s and there was a what i heard was a non-stop migration i don't know how they got to brazil because it is yeah, very far cool. to go from japan to brazil <laughs> you have to kind of go through san yeah. francisco i think but they made it to brazil <laughs> and the reason was because um there were states in brazil that needed Japanese laborers and the earliest Japanese were there to build the plantations. It's kind of similar to how when the Chi- the earliest Chinese migrants to the United States were there to build the railroads in the, in in the in the very in the middle to late uh, 1800s. But I I cannot talk about Peru, Peru but I can talk about Panama. Panama is um one of the countries where you see a lot of Descendants of the Chinese immigrants one out of 10 people in Panama is Chinese So I I I I was uh, involved in this assignment. So my Mm -hmm. so I I was working for the Smart City Infrastructure Transportation division That we we kind of we were kind of were in charge of in the entire Central and South America for 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 a company in that business area and so so At one time, the the vice president I was working for, he sent me to Panama because they had a recent election and I had to go and audit them, audit the company and make sure that the new administration kind of didn't find any fault in our projects because our our projects were signed by the previous administration. And when there was a new administration, right, there's a change of power. So I had to make sure and go there and all the things and make sure that everything was, was, was well in place. So he sent me to Panama. I flew to Panama. And one of the things that shocked me when I visited the, you know, Panama for the first time was how many people there were Chinese. Like essentially, one out of 10 people were Chinese, essentially. And I'd never seen so many Chinese people who spoke such fluent Spanish, ever. It was amazing. <laughs> Just like oh, you know, oh, wow. in, in, in Brazil, I'd never, yeah. never seen so many um, Japanese people <laughs> When I say Japanese, I mean Japanese Brazilians. Mm-hmm. And when I say Chinese, I mean Chinese Panamanians. Yeah. Because they, they, they're like this, planet, they're yeah. the fourth, fifth generation descendants already. But I've never seen like, so many Japanese speak so fluent Portuguese. I've never seen so many Chinese speak so fluent Spanish. It was shocking. These are descendants of um, people who migrated to Latin America five or more generations ago. And the, the earliest, the Chinese who came to Panama were there for the canal. Yeah. They were there because they were uh, people from the Canton regions, Guangdong regions, who w- were there to construct the canal. and just stay there. They they were they were, and then their descendants kind of just were uh, remained there, and some of them intermarried, others didn't. But they you know they're probably their identity is probably more Panamanian, and uh, I and I know for sure that the from interactions with the Japanese Brazilian, there is almost zero Japanese. Identity in. I actually, I take it back. There, there are Japanese schools. So there's this one area in São Paulo called Liberdaji which is kind of like the, the Japanese town. And then, the in, in near Liberdaji you know, there's also the Koreans, the Chinese, the all of the other East Asians establishments as well. But Liberdade was the biggest one. It was the Japan town, mm-hmm. so there are like Japanese schools and all that. So, no, so I take it back that there is the preservation of the culture. But for the most part, like you know, if you're working, you know, I have many coworkers were Japanese Brazilians. You know, when I interact with them, it is basically talking Brazilian. to a Brazilian in terms of you know, mm-hmm. the the there's no we would talk about Pele versus Maradona, right? He will always say Pele, right? He would never say Maradona. It's 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 the the, the Brazilian. Identity and, and, and because we're talking about like third, fourth, fifth generation, there's very little difference between a Japanese Brazilian and a I don't know Italian Brazilian or German Brazilian. There are a mm. lot of uh, yeah. Germans and Italians who moved to Brazil in the in the late 1800s, and also after the, the Second World War. And again, there is not much arguably German. About them, uh, they're much more Brazilian. You know, they, they, you know, when we interact, it's all Brazilian, right? It's all Brazilian. But, 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 you know, mm-hmm. they, it, it's quite contradictory because, yes, you know, if if you're in a in the office setting in São Paulo, you know, there's the yeah. the Japanese Brazilian, there's the Italian Brazilian, there's the <laughs> Portuguese Brazilian, there is the um, there is the the German Brazilian, but there are also like ethnic. Conclaves as well as just as in any country and there is this w- there's one place in Brazil called Blumenthal, I think if I remember correctly or, or something like that. It's a it's in a different state and mm-hmm. What I heard is that I've never been there By the way, what I heard is that people in that town only speak German They've only always only speak spoken German and they have some of the best Oktoberfests in all of the world it's, it's almost like in in, in, in America if you go to New York and if you go to Flushing in Chinatown, there are people who live in Chinatown in Flushing who've never spoken a word of English all of their life, and they survive and and they thrive and you have that and that's fine and that's fine and, and, and it's just it's just the incredible diversity of the world and how we cannot really essentially label people or peoples to be like a or b or c, and you know the reality is that People exist in this very random and diverse manner, no matter. Where you are
0: exactly that's what I found when I travel to anywhere. People will, when they see my face, they will say, Yeah, well, where are you from? If I say I'm from New Zealand, they will say, No, you are not. Where are you originally from? Because they all have the stereotype and they expect your behavior, it would be more like Chinese. You lived in so many places. Do you find it very offensive when people just um, label you? As a like Chinese, because you have an Asian face.
1: To be honest, it really depends on the location. Mm-hmm. So in the U.S., I know that there are a lot of racial tensions mm, yeah. and uh, anti-Asian violence. That's unfortunate right now. But for the most part, uh, I think again, I may be generalizing. It's more when people in the U.S. ask where you're from they actually expect you to tell them a state. Like, are you from California or are you from Illinois? So so there's the one thing that when people in the U.S. talk with another person in the U.S., and this doesn't matter if you're a citizen, if you're a permanent resident, if you're uh, on a a work visa whatsoever, it's more most people would answer by saying the state you're in. So when I'm in the U.S., I always say, when people ask me where you're from, I say I'm from Illinois, I'm from Chicago. Chicago is my hometown. And then we'll, you know, I'll talk about the Chicago Bulls. And the other person will talk about the Mets or the Jets or the Warriors or whatsoever. And we'll talk about the sports teams. And, and the, the way that the U.S. culture kind of works is that you talk about your home state, I'll talk about my home state, and then we, then we can talk about sports. And we all love to talk about sports. That's how the, the U.S., how things work in, in many cases. And then in Brazil, actually, when, I, when they asked me where you're from, I, I tell them that I'm Chinese American, uh, but but in, in in Brazilian Portuguese, there's no such term called Chinese uh, um, American. It's it's called North American. It's called a North Americano Chinês. So <laughs> Chinês is the uh, is the Brazilian term for Chinese, oh, okay. and it comes it comes actually after the North American. So there is no term for United States as much. Well actually there is, but uh, the common term is called, it's called North Americano, meaning North American. When you say you're north american it it, it means both United States and Canada, mm-hmm. but more, but more commonly united States so i I tell them I'm north american chinese yes and then, and then there's also others who like, introduce themselves as other like, Colombian or Peruvian
0: yeah.
1: and uh, other places as well so so i mean I guess I, I would introduce myself as, as North American Chinese. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't kind of shy away from the Chinese part because I think it's a a part of essential part of my identity.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: And so, but at the same time, I would also tell them that I'm from North America because that's essentially where also Mm -hmm. where, you know, my family's from where I'm from. So it kind of, it, it, it holistically produces Mm -hmm. a, uh, a identity of sorts because I, I oftentimes I have to offer like I, Am the one who proactively tells them I am North American Chinese. Because if they don't, if I if I don't offer that, they sometimes assume I'm Japanese. They think I'm Brazilian Japanese. You know, so, so, the, so they would assume I'm Brazilian Japanese ex- until I tell them, you know, I'm a American Chinese or I'm a North American Chinese. <laughs> and, and in that case, they go, ah, okay, he's a foreigner. He probably doesn't speak the language as much, or he's trying to learn a language. So let's be easy on him. Mm. Or else you'll be like, okay, Brazilian, Japanese, okay, da-da-da-da. It'll be a different set of assumptions. So, so, so in Brazil, they, they, I would at least my experience, again, I, I have, it's just a small sample size. I only say uh, what I observe and how I interact is that they would not typically ask you where are you originally from because, again, it's a melting pot, especially a city like Sao Paulo. It's a very much melting pot where anyone can have a person who you think is Brazilian in terms of the stereotypical uh, image of a Brazilian. Probably had a a grandfather from Syria, or a grand a mm-hmm. uh, mother from Lebanon, or a uh, another maternal grandmother from um, West Africa, or a uh, a maternal grandfather from Japan or, or or somewhere in Asia as well. So so there is no arguably no definitive definition of a Brazilian, and and one of the interesting things about these arguably these um american when i say American, i mean the american continent countries right whether it's u.s canada or mexico or brazil these countries are are that they are arguably what holds these countries together are arguably more of common values or ideals as opposed to a particular ethnicity because the ethnicity is very mixed it's very mixed the origins are very very mixed it's it's a it's very different from countries in Eurasia, which are more older and more definitive in terms of the. You know, you may have countries in um, many countries in Eurasia where you have a predominant ethnicity, uh, or or even ca- certain countries like Japan where it's almost mm-hmm. one ethnicity. Okay. So so th- so so th- that in that sense, it's very different in terms of how the identities identities are are formed. But obviously, you know, there is also um a lot of you know nativism as well i think that's happening populism that's happening as well um sure that's happening almost everywhere across the globe across the globe but 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 in terms of in relative terms i'd argue that the the north american and the south american identities are arguably more rooted in common ideals and common traditions as opposed to you know, national origin or eth- ethnic origin, because there uh, is because there has been a lot of uh, intermixing of people from different origins.
0: Yeah. So how do you deal with these ideology differences? Especially, you are as a Chinese living in America. You know, at the moment, the China-U.S. relation is at a tense. And even for me, when I consider my next destination, I, w- I need to consider about the China-Australia like Australia or China-New Zealand relation because, uh, you know, some racism activities might happen to, um, on myself. Yeah, I know it's a very big question. It's a
1: rabbit hole, uh, to be honest. It could be a rabbit hole. And, and, uh, and there, again, I can only speak in terms of what I observe and places I've been. So it's a small yeah. sample size. To just, so just to uh, to I, I want to uh, just to say that so again this is uh, just my perspective and I want to preface saying that this is I, I don't want this to go into a geopolitical discussion that could be particularly dangerous mm-hmm. so so you know I, I, I used to joke at conferences that I attend that you know as a chinese American no matter where I go I am probably disliked by fifty percent of where I go because of how I may get labeled. And it's supposed to be a joke, but, you know, it, it would be funny if it weren't probably true, so true. So, so, so in a nutshell, it, I, don't think, I don't think this is a good time for the Chinese-American community in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think it's a good time for the Asian-American um, community in general and the Chinese-American community in particular. And I think Balaji, actually, also in his podcast, he, he's spoken about that, how it's going to be tough for Chinese-Americans, especially in the coming couple of years. And I agree with that. Uh, in terms of your question about how like those experiences in America, quite honestly, I can't really speak too much about that because I have not been back in America for a long time. So I haven't been back in the U.S. since 2016. I made a promise to myself as long as Donald Trump was the President of the United States, I would not set foot in the United States <laughs> because there were a lot of people when, when <laughs> Trump got elected, and there were a lot of people who were saying, "You know Trump is elected you know i want to I'm gonna move to Canada or I'm going to you know, <laughs> you know get out of here and, and go to another uh, yeah. somewhere far away right, but people don't do it so mm-hmm. I, I mean again, I, I want to be a living testament that this is not as hard as it seems to be so long story short, uh, at the time I after leaving Brazil, I went back to the U.S. to visit my my uh, mother for about a month, and I went ahead. I went to Silicon Valley to visit some friends in San Francisco, and then afterwards, I bought a one way ticket to Bali, Indonesia, and uh, I have never. I have not been back to the U.S. since 2016. I have heard that it could get bad depending on where you are. From some of my like Asian American friends, Chinese American friends. But I have not personally experienced it because I was have not physically been back in the States since the time of Trump's election. Um, but then that said, you know, uh, I have also had a conversation with friends who say that it's a little bit, again, you know, you know how the news kind of can make things very much uh, mm-hmm. hyper. But but I do fundamentally believe that things have been worse than before. You know, it's been hypercharged, especially after the pandemic, you know, in terms of what everyone consumes in the news in terms of the the violence and and this is i think not just against the chinese americans but i think against asian americans as a community it's a tough time for asian americans as a whole which is again it's unfortunate and i do hope and sincerely hope that for the asian american communities for the chinese american communities Mm -hmm. that things can improve and get better because um I think uh, I, I hope for peace. I hope for prosperity. And I hope for uh, better harmony and equality for for all peoples. Before 2016, so I can't speak for experiences like before 2016, right? When I was in the U.S. growing up in the U.S., I think that uh, I mean, yes, there is always going to be some level of racism if you mix like so many people from different ethnicities together. But I think. Mm-hmm. Um, much of that is also quite innocent stuff in terms of it maybe just ignorance or you just haven't really learned about things. There isn't arguably like a bad intent per se in many of these instances. Um, And some of it it, it could be very, very innocent. And yes, I mean, there have been like few isolated incidents. And surprisingly, like these incidents are often in the major, the most... um, once it happened in New York, when I was visiting New York, once it happened in San Francisco, in California. And it's interesting that you know, these are the places where it's the most diverse, right? It's the biggest melting pot of sorts. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember like, when I was working in the American South, I think people were so conscious or so careful about these kind of things because it's not as diverse that I think people... Really, 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 really made it out of the way to be extra nice yeah. to you. And this, they're not just extra nice to me as an Asian American. They were like extra nice to the Midwestern Northerners who've like moved or are working in the South as well. And they, it's just like a level of Southern hospitality that was pretty amazing as well. So, so I, again, I'd I be very, very careful to give anyone like the, the racist label because I think it's also very unfair uh, when people just nowadays just throw the racist label at anybody who they feel displeases them as well. And that's also quite dangerous, and it causes a lot of conflict as well. Arguably, you know, as an Asian American growing up in America, I have been on the receiving end of just I guess stereotype working in a positive way. I remember having a math teacher in high school who could not imagine giving me a B in math because he thought that would have been crazy because he was really afraid that I would commit suicide so if I ever got a B in math. Yeah. Really. And he, was, he, he went out of his way to create opportunities fairly though. Mm-hmm. He, you know, those were all fair opportunities for me to kind of raise my grade to at least an A- minus. because he could not imagine giving an Asian American kid a B in math. That would be just unthinkable. How do you characterize that kind of behavior, right? So, but but for but for the most part, I think growing up, um, I would not say that it has not been a case of like let's say ex- experiencing a lot of racism. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's also again, I may I may also talk about it in terms of a small sample size. Um, you know, I've I've attended uh, schools, summer schools that was almost entirely African-American. As mentioned earlier, uh, elementary school, middle school, we had a lot of uh, Latin Americans, also um, kids who were the sons and daughters of immigrants from the Caribbean as well. In the high school I attended, were heavily in the Eastern European descendants. Um, In in a way, America itself is a melting pot of sorts. So at least growing up, I personally never felt... That I was intentionally discriminated against because of my ethnicity or where I was, where my ancestors were from. Mm. Um, There were people who were curious to learn more about my ancestry, yes, but it was never the source of overt intentional discrimination. And partly also because many of the people around me, whether they are teachers or professors or classmates or friends, they themselves had ancestry from again from uh africa from mm-hmm. uh the caribbean other parts of central and south america or uh many of them or had jewish ancestry and, and, and given the jewish diaspora right it's, it could be anywhere from the middle east to uh, eastern europe uh, there were many and many friends who had uh, ancestry from russia from ukraine from other part, poland other parts of eastern europe as well so uh, and also asian american friends from um from china from uh uh, with, with, again, ancestry, family from China, Korea, Japan, and other places. So it has always been a fairly diverse uh, diverse background. But I want to I go back to your, your uh, question about the particular U.S.-China relations. And this is a rabbit hole. So I'm not an expert. I don't claim to be an expert. There are too many people claiming to be experts. I'm not one of them. I'm not, I will not try to take sides uh, in this discussion. I'll try not to. And um, I don't. I don't want to. This try. I'll try to not make this a, a heavily political, or geopolitical discussion. Since again, we, we, I hope that again, the, this podcast episode is is also um, consumed by a ver- wide variety of audiences as well. I w- want to make, uh, in general, three uh, three points. And and again, before I, I, I say it, there seems to be a lot of uh, con- cognitive bias. I think in. in whenever the, the, you know, this conflict or this uh, discussion um, comes into, into being. And there are so many articles, uh, so many things that get written, and you know, it, it actually saddens me a little bit. When I remember back in the old days, like 10 years ago, when I opened up LinkedIn you know, or Twitter, right? Twitter was all about startups and digitalization, and mm-hmm. LinkedIn was about business deals and finding mm-hmm. jobs and business opportunities. And and nowadays, you know, out of outside of crypto, which, which is all, uh, everywhere, right? You know, LinkedIn, Twitter, it's mm-hmm. all it's all crypto. Crypto is everywhere, which is fine, which is great. I love it, but um, but but the, the unfortunate thing is that the U.S.-China thing kind of has uh, also become more and more a prominent uh, part of at least my um, LinkedIn and Twitter feed. For some reason, I don't know why, but it just it just happened, and I, I just it, it's, it's mind-boggling how. Mm-hmm. uh you you have these seemingly very professional professionals just suddenly make a very drastic political comment about something that's very extreme on one side or another I don't want to comment but it's just a it's a quite disturbing phenomenon okay so i want to i want to make just i want to make just three fairly quick points again uh without trying to take any sides in this in this conversation first i think that Countries and regions need to focus first on improving the livelihoods of the people, meaning improving education quality, improve, reducing inequality, combating the effects of climate change, improving healthcare, care, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, instead of looking at this as a contest of who wants to be number one or who wants to remain being number one, um, it, uh, in essence, ultimately boils down to things at a societal level. And there are things that are in one's control, and there are things that are beyond one's control. So it is one thing. So imagine if uh, you're in a school, and in a school um, for the past semester, there was this one guy who was the biggest and tallest, strongest person. And now, suddenly, someone else comes who looks very tall and strong and you know is it going to be a fight or can there be peaceful coexistence so you know again empires and hegemonies come and go Mm -hmm. but ultimately it's the societies it's the uh it's you know no matter if it's one um classroom head or two people who are uh, both classroom heads ultimately it's about getting good grades right so Uh, It's not about who is the strongest Mm -hmm. or who has the biggest muscle. It's more about who can essentially uh, take care of his or her own body and well-being and get the good grades to go to a good school. So just using a classroom analogy, but ultimately it's about society and whichever society can better reinvent itself, can improve education quality, reduce inequality, combat the effects of climate change, improve healthcare, Mm etc., will likely come out better and more prosperous because um, again, this is just me speaking gratuitously um, one person's opinion. Um, So I may be right or may be wrong, but, but I just have this feeling that by the year 2100, hopefully, hopefully we'll still be alive by that time. Hopefully by that time, I don't think either country is going to be the primary engine of growth in the world because the rest of the world is catching up, right? India, Africa, Southeast Asia, um, where the populations are growing, these places are catching up dynamically uh, are probably going to be the future places of growth. So what um, the u s and China can best do in terms of um, when we talk about ensuring the next what one hundred years of prosperity, focusing on improving the livelihoods of the people of the people, and these are things that um, one must do for one's own people. You, know, you cannot just blame other entity across the pond for, problem, for one's own problems. It is about problem solving, improving the livelihoods of the people, improving education, improving inequality, reducing the effects of climate change, improving healthcare, etc., etc. So, the first point. The second point, it is okay to respectfully agree to disagree. It is absolutely okay to respectfully agree to disagree. Um, it is impossible for everyone on the table to agree on everything. It is okay to agree to disagree, but there needs to be a certain level of rationality, at least to acknowledge that there are more than one angle, there's one more than one angle to look at the same problem. It is very dangerous to assume that the other side will think and act like how you would think or act in the same situation. And that is very, 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 very very dangerous because that is a thinking, a cognitive bias um, in terms of starting arguments based on pre-existing cognitive bias. And, in, and one kind of sees this fallacy a lot um, in terms of just pick up any article uh, on any side of the Pacific. Uh, and I don't want to take any sides. You know, Pick up New York Times or pick up uh, another or, uh, a publication on the other side. Again, I don't, I don't want to pick any names or, any, any, or, or so far and so forth. Uh, but arguably, there's a lot of fallacy in terms of what is published on many sites. Many so-called China experts should first live and work in China for many years before speaking. I don't don't just mean living like an expat in an ivory tower or living like a diplomat. Um, There's a tendency to read something on ivory tower and point fingers without actually being on the ground and seeing how things actually work. Mm Like and, and then counter, uh, on the other side, I think the counterparts in China who study America should also better try to better fundamentally understand how American society actually works. Sure. Because there's also arguably a huge misconception, misunderstanding on the China side in terms of understanding how America and American federalism and American states and how the entire social fabric actually works. There is too much cognitive bias on both sides, on all sides, at the moment, in terms of not thinking in terms of the other side's shoes, but having the bias of assuming that the other side will think exactly as one would think on one's own. And that's extremely, extremely dangerous, and that leads to unnecessary escalations that can be avoided. So that's the second point. The third point, I think, um, there's also a fallacy of bucketing everything together. So when the New York Times, not to pick on the Times, Times is a wonderful newspaper, uh, but when the New York Times talks about Chinese, the term Chinese, doesn't mean the civilization, doesn't mean the culture, doesn't mean the ethnicity, doesn't mean the language, doesn't mean the society, or doesn't mean one of two political entities that bear its name. There are 1.4 billion people, including over 100 cities, over 1 million in population. That's a lot. And that's one fifth of the human population on Earth. And that is a huge, huge, huge generalization. And there's a lot of, a lot of diversity within that one fifth of humanity. Similarly, America is also arguably not a single entity. There is a, we talked a little bit uh, about diversity and uh, the melting pot before. And it is a huge, America is a huge melting pot um, in terms of, you know, whether it's California or New York or Miami, um, you know, it's arguably that, arguably that if you don't know that California and New York and Miami are three cities in the same country, one would assume that these are three different city states or three different countries. So there's a lot of diversity in this melting pot. I don't think it's fair to just point fingers and point at America as this one single monolithic entity. Also, the West is, a uh, you know, we, we, we talk about, I think there's a lot of just buzzwords that are floating, China, America, the West, you know, the West is also sometimes a buzzword. In reality, there's an incredible diversity between the European Union, North America, and other areas. And you can argue that uh, the French think, think, the way that the French think, the, or the, the, the Germans think versus the, the British, right, or the Eastern Europeans, how they think versus how the North American thinks. I think, or even between uh, the U.S. and Canada, or even between parts of the U.S., or um, in, in other parts of, of the Western Hemisphere, it's very, very very much different. And I think it's very arguably irresponsible to just jumble everything together and call it China versus America or, I don't know, uh, the East versus West. It, it just, it just, uh, it's almost like begging for something bad to happen when it shouldn't be that way. So so, the, so the, the third point is that uh, I think there's a too much of a fallacy of bucketing, uh, bucketing every, everything together. So, so to summarize, number one, countries and regions should focus more on improving the livelihoods of the people and focusing on what one can control uh, to make things better fundamentally. And number two, um, it is, while it's okay to respectfully dis- agree to disagree, there needs to be more rationality in terms of at least acknowledging that there's, only, there's more than one angle, more than one perspective to look at the same problem, to, so, so as to avoid falling on cognitive biases. And number three, try to avoid the fallacy of, of just generically bucketing everything together when um, the world is such a diverse place of diverse people and diverse thinking.
0: Definitely side. On the individual level, how do you suggest them to cultivate the global mindset?
1: That's a very good question. So, to build on the previous uh, ideas, I think in order to build a, a global mindset, there needs to be an ability to live in different places and interact with different people. The, the, I, this is a question I often think of. of my, my son was born last year during the pandemic. And, you know, oh, I, and oftentimes, thank you. When I look into his eyes in the morning, you know, I wonder what kind of world and what kind of future is ahead of him. He is someone who is likely to live past the year 2100. I hope, I certainly hope, you know, I, you know from a probabilistically life expectancy wise, I hope I, I think that there's a highly chance, high probability that he'll live to the next century. So the the, the future is a a very important um, topic. Global mindset as well. I, I really hope that my son can develop into someone who has a fundamental global mindset. So I think the first point is one should develop abilities by trying to live in different places and interacting with people who are different from who he or she is. And again, I don't mean just by being an expat in an ivory tower (laughs) or a diplomat who's kind of limited to everyone who looks the same as you are. But you really have to essentially immerse yourself in different places and in different communities. And the more different from who you are, the better. And the, more, the younger the age in which you do this, mm-hmm. the better. And each of these places and communities kind of create experiences that form a part of who you are. And, and you know, can I use you as an example? Um, because I remember um, reading your introduction in the 1729 community, or you were uh, born or built in China, but then... Oh, yeah. Made in, in, China. in China. Thank you. You're made yeah. in China, but you're in, assembled, in, assembled in New, New Zealand, Zealand and then <laughs> formalized in the UK. And that's beautiful. That's a beautiful, beautiful introduction and analogy. Because <laughs> the places where we are and the people we interact with, the experiences that we have in these different areas, together mm. form the melting pot of who we are. You know, each individual is essentially a melting pot of his or her diverse experiences and the more diverse the experiences are in more areas around the world arguably the more global your melting pot becomes that's the first point the second point is that a global mindset oftentimes requires a certain holistic thinking and holistic objectivity i think i think that for global organizations communities and individuals to thrive Uh, one should develop, again, the ability to hold two or more seemingly opposing ideas or viewpoints together in a spectrum. There is um, arguably a nearsighted tendency for individuals, communities, or even organizations, even nation states, to selectively bias what is in their own proximity and narrowly assume that this selected sample size represents the world viewed. However, more likely mm-hmm. when you see someone as foreign, chances are there is someone on the other side out there who sees you as equally foreign. This, this applies to individuals, applies to communities, applies to companies, organizations, and even to, I think, especially to nation States. And uh, so there, there needs to be essentially, I think that in the future for a global citizen for a person who wants to thrive, I guess, arguably in the 21st century, one should try to, and this is hard. This is really difficult because we are all products of our own environments, but one should strive or at least make attempt to try to hold two or more seemingly opposing ideas or viewpoints together in a spectrum and see them in as a spectrum, as opposed to absolute black or white. This is very hard to do. And politicians fail. leaders fail. CEOs fail. Um, Most of us fail at this in one form or another because we're all products of our upbringing. We're all products of the environments that we live in.
0: Exactly. So what would you like to achieve for this lifetime? Uh, What project are you working on?
1: Number one to just stay stay alive, I guess, stay alive yeah. <laughs>
0: to be, to be
1: <laughs> yeah. able to breathe as much oxygen as possible. Yeah. That would be good. And then I think, from a from a family perspective, uh, to also ensure the uh, survival and prosperity of uh, of the wife, the the child, and the family. And also, I think uh, from a and from a more career level. So um, so I'm a partner at a. Education consulting firm and a project-based learning company. What we do is that we primarily work with uh, high school students in Beijing and Shanghai, but uh, including many who go to like international schools. But we also have students who are from like who are American, Canadian, South African, Singaporean, British, for example. And our goal is to essentially uh, develop more compassionate and open-minded global citizens, which I think um, is especially needed in this upcoming age of potential upheavals and uh, tensions. And I think the more global citizenship, more people who understand better or better understand or who can be more open-minded to how other sides can think can potentially thrive more and allow the world to be a more peaceful place. Uh, we have had collaborations with social enterprises, NGOs, startups in China, from the US, from India, Philippines, etc. Through which students do project-based learning work. Um, for example, we have an upcom- upcoming uh, project-based learning with a social enterprise in India, focusing on improving Indian farmers' livelihoods. And our students will be working on projects to co-create podcast episodes interviewing Indian farmers. From a general perspective, again, I I, uh, I hope to survive uh, long enough to hopefully see a better world. And uh, and, and, and I think this is where 1729 comes in. I know, Camille, you have spoken to many uh, amazing individuals from the 1729-er community. Mm. Again, when I think about my son, uh, he was born last year, I wonder what kind of world awaits him. And and I sometimes become unsettled. And the 1729 concept from Balaji and the 1729-er community makes me believe that there is potentially hope you know i i uh, I first heard about the 1799 concept from balaji's podcast with tim ferris like with everyone else or most people have you know we started with this this tim ferris podcast with balaji and his ideas around startup cities network unions crypto progressiveness really resonated with me with with chance with um, many others with you a lot of others in the um, 1729er community you know, I love the community because it's a it's a congregation of nomads, misfits, yeah. third culture kids, tech progressives, idealists, dreamers, global citizens in a world that is kind of arguably showing cracks, post COVID, and that's arguably dangerously becoming bipolar, in, in which you know again you see these almost seemingly irreconcilable rhetoric. That is coming mm-hmm. and becoming increasingly black and white on both sides and, and many sides, and in which you know millions of people as well as communities, at least here in Southeast Asia, where I am in right now, are finding themselves arguably dangerously stuck between these like impending supercharged colliders that is out of our control in a way. And whether you, your individual or your community, post COVID, you kind of see these cracks that are there. And you're wondering, how can we fix these cracks and make the world uh, arguably a better place than it was before? And so there's that concept with with 1729ers of trying to collectively build a Linux, if I can use this analogy, a Linux of systems and solutions Mm -hmm. that's kind of organic for a more humanistic future by looking at startup cities and essentially, you know, at the bottom of it, uh, I had a conversation with Zach, who I think will be uh, one of your podcast guests. And Zach has amazing ideas around cities and how the ultimately the problem solving happens at the municipal and the city level, you know, by looking at startup cities, network unions uh, at DAOs and the future of education and work. And how can we, as a collective of, Global citizens of misfits, of digital nomads Mm -hmm. from all over the world, come together online and have these kind of constructive discussions to maybe take things a small step. We're not again; we we probably won't be uh, there to solve everything. It's too it's too too complex, right? But at least we'll hopefully contribute to a very small step along the way of this larger humanistic progress.
0: Yeah. So last question, what gets you most excited about the future? Because to be honest, I have to confess, before I was thinking I don't want any children because I don't see the future for my next generation. But uh, since I joined the 1729 community, I just see so many individuals they are doing their best to create a better future and align with my vision, and I just have the faith, like, yeah, the future, actually, yeah, we can change the future. What gets you most excited about the future?
1: That's a great question. i uh, think about that. I'm excited about new ideas that potentially push the boundaries of existing paradigms. So in that line, just like you, like Chance, like Zach, like Joel, and like uh, many others in the seventy 79- nine. 29er community i'm um, very grateful to uh learn and to be a part of this wonderful community of thinkers doers and dreamers and um you know i'm learning every day uh it's it's oftentimes overwhelming in terms of the amount of of knowledge and 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 material that's there and that's i think there's crypto curious who's coming together with a lot of crypto stuff and there's there's a greg who's amazing in um in aggregating a lot of these, of uh, these knowledge areas and libraries, you know, kudos to him. Amazing. Um, I, I'm not sure if you have talked to Greg. He's, he's just got uh, amazing energy, and um, of course, Chance, who's been just amazing with aggregating all this information. I just, I wish my brain, I could be smarter, and I, I wish my brain can be faster in processing all this information. You know, and I can learn more and learn faster. I, I wish, I wish, like if I had a genie's lamp that we be one of my wishes. If I can if my brain can be more like a supercomputer and be able to observe all absorb all of the wonderful information that's that's been like posted on a daily basis on the on this community, that'll be that'll be awesome. And uh I'm excited about learning. I am excited about these new ideas that I learned, uh that I hope I hope as a community, as a community, because it's not one individual cannot do this alone, as a community, um these ideas can be balanced, refined, together push the boundaries of existing paradigms.
0: Thank you so much for your time today. I learned a lot. I'll I definitely invite you again to talk more with topics because so many things I want to talk with you.
1: <laughs> I'd love to uh, anytime.
0: Cool. Thank you very much, Jim.
1: Thank you very much, Camila.